Father, I pray that you would speak to us mightily by the power of your word and spirit. I pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Um, Where's Joshua Manns? Come here, come here, bro. So Josh and Karina, they live in our building right down, right on the same floor, right down the hall. So we spend a lot of time together. I notice you're wearing a, a paper mask. Yeah. Uh, do you know where your real mask is? Did you misplace it? You have it. It's right here. <laughs> Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why this is important. I just realized just, just before I came up mm. that that ain't my mask. So a few months ago, Josh was like, uh, you got to check out this brand called Cheekies. And so I ordered a cheeky mask. The same as his cheeky mask. So here's the story. I'm kicking it at his house, at his place one day, at his apartment. When I walk in, I took my mask, I sat it down on the cabinet right next to his. We had a good time together. We had good fellowship. And then I left and grabbed my mask on the way out. And I got in my car and went to Safeway to pick up some groceries. And I put my mask on. And I noticed that it smelled kind of funny. And I kept walking around Safeway going, what am I smelling? I kept thinking, what did I eat last time I wore this mask? It's almost like a combination of Doritos, foot, and honestly, a tinge, just a tinge of feces. <laughs> and I kept thinking, man. I need to go see a doctor. (laughs) Until I I reached up to touch my nose and I realized, let me see your mask. There's a metal hook right here, this metal thing. I don't have that in my mask. And it dawned on me all of a sudden that I'm having such an unpleasant experience because I'm wearing somebody else's mask. Go take your seat. Thank you. Thank you. Now, in Josh's defense, he would have had the same experience had he worn my mask. Matter of fact, arguably, it would have been worse. Matter of fact, nobody wants to wear somebody else's mask. I mean, there's, there's, there's intimacy, there's vulnerability, there's transparency, and there's closeness. But I don't care how intimate we are, nobody wants to wear somebody else's mask. Let me tell you why a lot of people get hurt at church. And a lot of people give up on covenant community. Because you found yourself putting on somebody else's mask and you thought that's what love meant. Or somebody wanted you to put on their mask. Let me tell you something. We've all got stuff that stinks in our life. And that's stuff we don't share with one another. That's not what intimacy is. That's stuff you just keep to yourself. We all got it, but we keep it to ourselves. I put on my mask to cover the stank of my own breath. All of us have times where your breath smells like an old folks home. It's just real. But you don't share that with somebody else. And what ends up happening is you had an experience of covenant community where you constantly found yourself putting on other people's masks, experiencing other people's stink. And you finally ended up saying, I've had enough of this. I've had enough of smelling other people's stink. I'm done with this. I'm going to do this Christian thing on my own, by myself, just me and God from now on, me and Jesus, because I can't handle Christians. When all you actually needed how to learn how to do 
is to identify the difference between your mask and somebody else's mask. Okay. Because actually, if I keep my mask to myself and you keep your mask to yourself, we can have great intimacy and experience each other as very clean and wholesome individuals, can't we? When you experience somebody as being very clean and wholesome, it simply means that there's been a proper differentiation, a proper division between the stuff that stinks in my life and the stuff that stinks in your life. We keep it separate, and we can experience one another as clean. And sometimes that's what love demands. Let me get into it. Today marks the conclusion of our series on covenant friendship. We've been talking about this all month long. Is this a conclusion? Yes. Yes. Our covenant friendship series, we've been talking about it all month long. My wife started it out at the beginning of the month, a powerful sermon on uh, David and Jonathan. He loved Jonathan. They loved each other as their own souls. They made yeah. covenant with one another. Yeah. And then Pastor Jeremy talked about Jesus and love the very next Sunday. It was so powerful. Last Sunday, I talked about the Trinity. And what I began to open up last Sunday is that this New Testament word, agape, that's translated love, is a correspondent to the Old Testament term, Hebrew term, chesed, which means steadfast love or covenant faithfulness. And what we established last Sunday is that when the New Testament calls us to love, it's actually calling us to covenant faithfulness. Love from a New Testament concept equals covenant faithfulness or steadfast love which grates against our culture that teaches us that love is a collection of feelings. So when you hear people's, uh, a marriage fell apart, and what, what do you hear? I just don't love you anymore. Hmm. Meaning, I don't feel about you the way I used to feel about you, which indicates that we have defined love as a collection of feelings. And when that collection of feelings is gone, the love is broken. When it is, is actually something deeper than feeling, it is covenant faithfulness steadfast love. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 22 says, what a man desires most is chesed, yeah. steadfast love. Yeah. Literally, the literal interpretation is what a human being desires most or yearns for or longs for most is steadfast love. Mm. At the heart of every human being is a deep yearning for one thing, steadfast love. It's the deepest need that you have. It's the deepest need that I have. It's the deepest want that you have. It's the deepest want that I have. It's the deepest longing of every human creature, steadfast love. And so what Jesus, first of all, we, have, we must understand that we all have fallen short of steadfast love, both in the receiving and in the giving of it. Yeah. So this is both the deepest human need and the most profound human crisis. The deepest human need is we all long for steadfast, covenantal, unfailing love. Yeah. But the deepest human crisis is none of us have ever fully had that need fulfilled. Wow. And so this is where God steps in. And this is the Old Testament biblical theology of the nature of God. Psalm 35, verse 5 and following, your steadfast love, your steadfast love yeah. extends to the heavens. Yeah. Your righteousness reaches to the clouds. Your faithfulness is like majestic mountains. Your wisdom like the depths of the sea. Your steadfast love extends to the heaven. The great testimony yeah. of the Old Testament saints is that where human steadfast love has fallen short in my life, divine steadfast love has stepped in. Amen. The, and the psalmist talks about that a lot. Your steadfast love extends to the heavens. Yeah. It's... The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, Jeremiah says. Yeah. His mercies never come to an end, but they're new every morning. And so first and foremost, God's steadfast love fills the gap where human steadfast love falls short. We're going to sing that song again at the end of the service. I'm already loved. I'm already chosen. I know who I am. What's the next word? You've already spoken. I'm already loved. Why? His steadfast love extends to the heavens, meaning wherever there's a gap of human steadfast love in my life, when I open my heart up to Jesus Christ, the steadfast love of the Lord rushes in to fill 
that empty space, rushes in to fill that void. That's really the invitation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've got holes, voids, emptiness in your heart, and what ends up happening where we have a void in our lives where steadfast love has fallen short, human steadfast love has fallen short, we try to fill that void with anything and everything. Addiction is simply the attempt to fill with earthly pleasure the void that has been left by the absence of steadfast love. We try to fill it with addiction. We try to fill it with money. We try to fill it with success. We try to fill it with fame. You can try to fill it with discipline. You can try to fill it with cleanliness. That's what OCD is. It's simply a a, a seemingly positive manifestation of an addictive attempt to try to fill the void left by the absence of steadfast love. And the gospel is simple. For God so loved the world, so steadfast loved the world, so covenantally loved the world, so undying, unendingly loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He was willing to go to any lengths to come and say, I'm here to rush into your life to fill the void left because, of course, human beings are fallen and flawed and and human beings will fail you. And so there's going to be a void left. But we spend the rest of our lives trying to get those human beings to come back and fix the holes that they left in our lives. No, no, I don't need God. I need you to come back and fill the void that you left in my life because of your lack of steadfast love. And the the gospel is no, 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 no. There's no human being on earth that can do that for you. But the steadfast love of the Lord, it never ceases. And his mercies never come to an end. But they are new every morning. Now, Jesus, the first thing he does, and we talked about this last week, the first thing he does is he creates a covenant community. And what he teaches his disciples is that there's actually three different contexts for steadfast love. He's going to command them to love steadfastly, agape, covenantally, but he's going to teach them to love in three different contexts, and you can see them as concentric circles. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to start at the outer concentric circle, and we're going to make our way in because I think we've got some faulty misunderstandings of what it means to love one another that actually causes us to put on one another's masks. Huh. Wow. Um, how about this first one? Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 to 48. I'm just going to read it to you. It's very simple. Jesus says, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, agape, chesed, covenantally, steadfast, unfailing love your enemies. Isn't it crazy? Jesus calls us to covenant with our enemies. When you take out the feeling stuff, it, it hits different, don't it? Yeah. When you understand love to be steadfast, covenantal, it hits a little bit different. Yeah. Covenantally, steadfast, love my enemies? Wow. See, your enemies are those who are overtly against you. Yeah. Who overtly desire to destroy you. who desire you evil and not good, who are jealous of what you got because they want it for themselves, who have no good intentions toward you, who would rejoice if something bad happened to you, love to see you demoted, talk about your mama, talk about you behind your back, always looking for a way to cut you down, and maybe they've even succeeded in cutting you down. That's the hard part. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit for easier for me to love enemies who tried but failed yeah. to cut me down. Yeah. But when you tried and succeeded, yeah. I want to go back to, to David and pray those imprecatory psalms. You, you know what I'm talking about, the imprecatory psalms, where David's like, Lord, kill them all. Rip their arms out of their sockets. Throw them off cliffs. May their children be, be, be fatherless and beg for... I mean, David prayed those kind of prayers. I was like, dang, David, tell us how you really feel. 
Listen to what Jesus says. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, the fact that I tell you I'm praying for you doesn't mean you're my friend. Sometimes when you, I mean, you, you, know, you know the sound when you tell us, you know what, I'm going to pray for you. <laughs> you, know, you know that. You know, you were there. I'm going to pray for you. That means you are my enemy. Sometimes praying for someone begins with the acknowledgement that you are my enemy. But, but hold on. We got to go further because I haven't given you the content of that prayer yet. Because <laughs> I'm going to pray for you. Lord, smite them in the fury of your wrath. <laughs> right. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. That you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and since reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. The paradigm is the Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous. Can you imagine if God only let the sun shine on people who loved him? It's like, you know what? Just turn off the sun over this this whole country over here right here. These neighborhoods right here, they're going to live in the dark. And causes his rain to rise, to fall on the just and the unjust. You know what? Just turn off the rain. No more rain over there. Because they don't like me. (laughs) Can you imagine if God was that vindictive? Jesus says, think about your father in heaven. Is there any distinction between the way he blesses the just and the unjust? The righteous and the unrighteous. When he sends rain, does he send more on the righteous neighborhoods? Mm -mm Mm-mm-mm. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? The IRS? (laughs) And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, even as your father is perfect. There's actually another verse here in Romans chapter 12, verse 20. It says, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Now, we're going to put a pin there, and then we're going to go to the next context of love, the next concentric circle. Uh, Matthew chapter 22, verse 38 and 39. Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus responds, the greatest commandment of the law is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. And then he says, and the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So first Jesus says, love your enemies. That's the furthest out concentric circle. And then Jesus says, now love your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? What's the difference between your neighbor and your enemy? So in, in a particular context, Jesus is asked, who's my neighbor? When Jesus says this, he's asked, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the story of a man, a, Samarit- a man who's heading from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he gets robbed. And not only is he robbed, but he's beaten and left for dead. And he's yeah. on the side of the road, and he's laid out, and he can't get up. His bones are broken, and it's hot out there, and he's going to die. He's probably going to die of dehydration. His wounds, maybe he's going to bleed out. Who knows? And a pastor comes through and says, sorry, I ain't got time to help. I'm going to be late to church and passes right by, and an evangelist comes through and says, oh, Lord, he looks dirty. I don't want to touch him, and crosses to the other side of the street and keeps going on his merry way. But then there was the Samaritan who came through. Understanding what it would have sounded like for Jesus to say a Samaritan came through is kind of like if you were at the Republican uh, convention and Jesus speaking. And he tells the story, and then he says, a Democrat came through. (laughs) Or if you were at the Democratic National Convention, and Jesus is speaking, and he says, a Republican came through. In other words, when Jesus said a Samaritan came through, he said, the people you're not. The people you think differently from, the people that you think are your enemies. One of your enemies came through and had compassion. 
and put him on his own donkey and took him to an inn and poured oil in his wounds and bandaged him up and fed him and gave him food and then paid the tab and said, let him stay there till he's better. And if there's any more cost, let me know and I'll pay for it. Who's your neighbor? Your neighbor is the stranger who's in need. Outside of your circle. Not members of your church. Not members of your family. Somebody you don't know. Somebody is of a different culture than you. But it's in need. That's your neighbor. When Jesus says love your neighbor, he's not talking about the person you have barbecues with in your neighborhood. (laughs) He's talking about the stranger that you've never met before. When he says love your neighbor as you love yourself. Meaning the same compassion that you would have on yourself when you found yourself in the ditch, have that compassion on your neighbor. And that is the second greatest commandment of the law. But then, in John chapter 13, verses 33 through 35, Jesus sits with his inner circle, with his disciples, and he says, a new commandment I give you. It's interesting that he calls it a new commandment. He calls it a new commandment because he's referring to the two great commandments and saying, now I'm taking it a step deeper. Love one another. This is the inner concentric circle. This is a different level of covenantal love. You experience covenantal love in all three. But in the inner circle, you experience it in a different way. Notice that Jesus says, Love your enemies by praying for them. And Paul says, if he's hungry, give him something to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And then he says, love your neighbor by providing for them when they're in trouble, doing what you can to show care for your neighbor. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says the way you love your enemy is the same as you love your neighbor? Meaning, when you love your enemy, you're making it plain that the enmity is one direction. That you are my enemy, but I'm not yours. Wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Yeah. And you can be my enemy as long as you want. I will never become yours. Wow. You wish me evil, I'm going to wish you good. Wow. Why? Because to me, you're just a neighbor. Wow. Even though to you I'm an enemy, to me you're a neighbor. Wow. That's good. Love makes a neighbor out of an enemy. Ooh, and yeah. that's why the scripture says when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Yeah. You cannot be at war for long with someone who loves you unconditionally and someone who shows you unconditional love. You just can't do it. But now we get to this inner circle, and this is the piece that I wanted to focus on because it's so applicable to us. Hmm. When we talk about covenantal love, first thing we have to acknowledge is sometimes we treat people in our inner circle in ways that Jesus says don't even treat an enemy that way. in ways that Jesus says, you should do better even for a stranger. But your inner circle? Let's get into this a little bit. A new commandment I give you. Love, agape, chesed. Say that, chesed. Just practice, you'll get there. A lot of spitting in the practicing. Unconditionally. Unreservedly, steadfastly, love one another. But then he gives a new stipulation in the one anothering that he doesn't give in any of the other two. He's talking to his inner circle. He says, you all love one another as I have loved you. It's a different level of covenantal love that you're going to experience here among the 12 than they experience out there. You don't have to do this for the neighbor or for the enemy. You're going to do this for one another. You got it twisted because you tried to do this for your enemy. And you got all jacked up over it. You let your enemy in your house. You don't let him in the house. You pray for him at the gate. And you see him in the street needing water. You don't take him in the house. You go in the house and get a cup of water and bring it out to him and and put water in his mouth. Notice, even the Samaritan didn't take him home. He took him to a hotel. 
He took, and it says an inn. He took him to a, like a, a, a Motel 6. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? He took care of him, but he didn't try to take him into his family and disturb his kid and put his kids in danger. The kind of love that Jesus calls us to is not the kind of love that causes you to sacrifice your family for strangers. There's certain people you're going to love at the gate. I'm going to come out to the gate and greet you when you pass by. I'm never inviting you in. It doesn't mean I don't love you. It simply means I acknowledge who you are to me. You're hearing me. It's about to get deeper. As I have loved you, so you, you 12, must love one another. Watch the way I love you. That's the pattern. The way I've loved, specifically the way I've loved you, is different than the way I've loved everyone outside of this room right now. Because fundamentally, this is the hardest part. The first component of the love that Jesus showed to his disciples, his 12, his inner circle, was he chose them. And that was a great scandal. Because how come Jesus chose those 12? What's so special about them? How come I couldn't get into the 12? There's a scandal of particularity that Jesus says, you 12 are going to be closer than everybody else is. And there was actually a broader group of people, about 120 people, who were able to get over that scandal of particularity and simply follow. And you know what they did? When Jesus was in the inner room with the 12, they were hanging out in the windows because there was no glass windows. It was just a window at that time was an opening. So people would come stick their ear in the window. You know, one of those guys actually wrote a book of the Bible. His name was Mark. You know, Mark was not a disciple. He wasn't one of the 12. He was one of the 120 that was not scandalized by the fact that he was not one of the 12. He did not feel loved less because he was not chosen to be in this particular group. Love one another. The way I've loved you. Mm. Number one, I've chosen you. And what Jesus is literally saying to his disciples, I I chose you 12 to be my inner circle. But I also chose you 12 to be your own inner circle. Did you hear that? You don't get to choose who's in your inner circle. God does. Jesus said, I'm not calling you to pick your own inner circle and create a clique. Go pick your clique of 12 and then love that 12 the way I've loved the No, no, no. Jesus says, you 12, I picked you for one another. I put you together. You don't get a choice in the matter. You are the clique. And he purposefully picked folks who naturally hated each other. Simon the Zealot. You know who the Zealots were? They hated Roman influence into Israelite culture. They, and they were, they were assassins. They were zealots, meaning they were like suicide bombers. Like they were willing to kill themselves if they could just kill some Romans. Yeah. And then who does Jesus pick? Matthew the tax collector, who is a Jewish Roman sympathizer, works for the Romans, and collects taxes from the Israelites. Yeah. I bet Matthew probably seeing Simon the zealot in the group stayed extra close to Jesus. Like, Jesus, uh, Simon over there looked like he want to kill me all the time. Imagine you're just hanging out with Jesus and Simon's just looking at Matthew the whole time. That's a scandal when Jesus picks people and puts them in your inner circle yeah. that you don't like. And then commands you, y'all better get along. Love one another. I'm telling y'all. I'm not telling you to get out of here and find an inner circle that you like. I'm telling you this is your circle. I picked it for you. Love one another. Y'all figure it out. I'm not asking you to agree politically. I'm commanding you to love one another. I'm not asking you to see the world the same way. I'm asking you to love one another. I don't see one place where Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot sat down together and argued out their politics until they came to an agreement. You know what they came to an agreement to do? We're going to love one another. Because obviously Jesus never told us which one he agrees with. 
He picked us both. He loved us both equally. Jesus says, I chose you. Now choose each other. I chose you. Now choose each other. Sometimes the hardest part of covenant community is resisting the call of Jesus to choose the people that are already in my covenant community. I mean, Jesus already put you there. I'm just having trouble choosing you. Jesus already chose you for me. I'm still having trouble choosing you for me. Love one another, Jesus says. The first component of that, choose one another as I have chosen you. And then Jesus says, be patient with one another as I am patient with you. And this is just 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Love, covenantal love, Steadfast love, chesed, is patient. Yeah. And it's kind. Yeah. And it doesn't envy. Mm. And it doesn't boast. Yeah. See that? Love yeah. is patient. Mm. And because it's patient, it's kind. I know when I've lost my patience because I lose my kindness. And when I've lost my kindness, I know not only that I've lost my patience, I've lost my chesed towards you. And then I have to repair. And I have to come back and say, you know what? The way I spoke to you in that moment, that that wasn't very patient or very kind. Do you know where the patience and the kindness comes from? I wrote down this list of affirmations that I think will help every couple, and especially married couples. If you meditate on these, speak them over and over again in in your heart. Use them as a counterpoint to the negative thoughts that you get about your your spouse. Speak them to one another. It'll change the way you do relationship. The first affirmation, you make sense. Husbands, wives, just look right at one another right now and say, you make sense. You can't do it, can you? <laughs> Some of y'all can't do it because you don't believe that. Because when you're hurt by your spouse, the first thing, because that don't make no sense. And especially husbands, when your wife is hurt and you don't understand why. How many times have I heard husbands say, look, I tried to talk to her rationally. I tried to reason with her. She won't listen to reason. Translation, she don't make no sense. Not realizing your wife feels the same way about you. (laughs) You don't make a lick of sense either. But the affirmation you make sense does not mean you make sense to me. That's not the affirmation. You'll go crazy trying to convince yourself that your wife (laughs) makes sense to you. You don't make sense to me, but you make sense. And when I say you make sense, what that means is that your history and your experience has led you inexorably to the place where you now stand. And if I fully understood that history and that experience, I would fully understand why you feel what you feel. I can't tell you how many times over the last 21 years, my wife and I will celebrate 21 years next month, that I have hit this moment where I learn something about her history that causes the lights to turn on. And I go, of course you feel that way. Of course you feel that way when I say that. Of course when I do this, it makes you feel this. Ah, now that I understand where you've been, what you've walked through, what you've experienced, what you've endured, you make sense. You make sense. That's first. Number two, your pain is just as important as mine. I want you to say that right now. Just look at your spouse and say, your pain is just as important as mine. Your pain is just as important as mine. Amen. No, no, no. You need to say it back to me, too. (laughs) She's like, I receive it. (laughs) Your pain is just as important as mine. Meaning, if you make sense, then I acknowledge that I'm not the only one who's hurt in this situation. 
and your pain is important too. It might not be important to me right now, <laughs> but it's just as important to God. Yeah. And if it's just as important to God, I'm going to connect with him until it's just as important to me. Yeah. You make sense. Your pain is just as important as mine. What's the rest of them? These are really good. You need this. Here it is. You are not the cause of my pain. Wow. You need to keep that in your mind. You're not the cause of my pain. You're just the trigger. Yep. <laughs> All you did was trigger the awareness of pain that I brought with me into this marriage. Yeah, 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 yeah. I feel so rejected. And my wife is 100% responsible for that because of what she did 10 minutes ago. Nah. There's a history of rejection that I carried into this marriage that goes all the way back to my childhood. Yeah. And I'm trying to make her 100% responsible for the entire history of that pain because yeah. of what she just did to me right now. Yeah. No, you're not the cause of my pain. You need to meditate on that. When, yeah. when you're hurt by your spouse, she's not the cause of my pain. She's the trigger. And God can't get you underneath the trigger to the actual cause until you open your heart and your mind to that reality. Yeah. Until I recognize, God, she's not the cause, she's the trigger. Help me understand the cause. He can't take me down to the cause and yeah, heal it. Yeah. God only opens up what he intends to heal. Yes. When I'm triggered, that means something's being opened up. God intends to heal it, but God can't heal it until I bring that thing to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. I don't understand you, but I want to. Mm. And there's a prideful way to say that and a humble way to say it. The prideful way to say it is, I don't get you. I don't understand you, which is another way of saying, you don't make a lick of sense. (laughs) But then there's the humble way of saying that, I really don't understand you, but I want to. I'm now presenting myself as a student of you. Will you teach me? Mm. And when I go to God, God, I don't understand her, but I want to. Will you teach me? I said that to God one time. He said, I don't understand her either, but, you know, I'm just playing. (laughs) I'm just playing. He didn't say that. <laughs> Number five, I don't understand me either, yeah. but I want to. Yeah. And this is actually the deeper part. Yeah. Because so often when you're frustrated because you don't understand your spouse, if you were to actually get underneath that, you would discover that the more frustrating thing is you don't even understand yourself. Yeah. If you would ask yourself, why am I so hurt by this? Why does this hurt so bad? This might not hurt somebody else as bad as it hurts me. Why does it hurt me in particular as bad as it does? I can't get healing till I begin to ask God to help me understand me. Yeah, that's good. Number six, I'm going to work on me to make more room for you. Yeah. I'm going to work on me to make more room for you. Yeah. Meaning when I go to God, I'm not asking him to work on you. I'm not asking him to fix you. I'm asking him to fix me. Yeah. I'm working on me. Yeah. And as I work on me and God begins to heal me, I'll find that I have more room for you. Yeah. Good. Number seven, in the meantime, let's build joy. Yes. What do I mean, let's build joy? I mean, let's create a pattern of joyful interactions with one another that are not dependent upon where we are in our healing journey. A pattern of interactions. What do I mean by that? How about a nightly bedtime routine where you read a chapter of the Bible together or meditate on one verse of Scripture together? Tell what that Scripture means to you. Share that with one another. How about recap the day? On a scale of 1 to 10, how was your day? 7, what was the greatest challenge of your day? And what was the greatest joy of your day? That way we share our lives with us, and we're in the habit of sharing our lives with one another on a daily basis. This is how we build joy, because now I have a, I have a plan for reconnecting with you each and every day, yeah. for sharing with you each and every day. Yeah. How about, you know, one of the things we do is we have this weekly thing, this weekly program, where we find a way to love one another better. And my wife has a way of just making it really, really simple. That's what I appreciate about her. It was one of those times she says, okay, baby, what do you want me to do for you to love you better this week? And I said something deep like, 
I want you to watch the tone of your voice when you ask me to clean and take out the garbage. <laughs> you know what I mean? Something like, <laughs> something deep like that. And, she, and you know what she did? Let's watch this wisdom. She just smiled and said, how about, how about I just focus on smiling at you more? And I was like, yeah, that's better. Let's do that. <laughs> no, no, no. She said, uh, oh, and then she said, and for you, I would like you to, to hold my hand. I would like you to just be more conscious about holding my hand more. Just made it very simple. I'm like, ah, yes. We tend to get it in our minds that we got to fix the deepest, darkest issues we have with one another before we can actually build any intimacy. No, we simply need to establish base points yeah. of saying, we're going to build joy together and we'll heal along the way. Yeah. But we're going to keep building joy with one another as we go. And then last one, thank you for being patient with me. Mm. Thank you for being patient with me. All eight of those things. You make sense. Your pain is just as important as mine. You're not the cause of my pain. You're just the trigger. I don't understand you, but I want to. I don't understand me, but I want to. I'm going to work on me to make more room for you. In the meantime, let's build joy. And thank you for being patient with me. These don't just work in marriage. Yeah. This is how to do covenant friendship. Yeah. This is how to do covenant friendship. Yeah. It's not about wearing one another's mask. Yeah. It's not about diving into the deepest, darkest, dirtiest parts of one another and staying there till we fix it. <laughs> we make it too catastrophic. Yeah. Sometimes somebody's going to say something that you just disagree with to the core, and you think love means I'm going to confront you and I'm going to keep fighting you until we agree. Simon the Zealot and Matthew the Tax Collector would have never built a covenant bond had they tried to do that. Yeah. They never would have agreed politically, yeah, yeah. ever. But you know what they did? They both decided to follow Jesus. Uh -huh. yes. And following Jesus together yeah. meant that they kept running into each other on the journey. And because they were both looking to Jesus and not looking to each other, yeah. looking to Jesus and not looking at one another, yeah. they found this kinship with one another, mm. this resonance with one another, and this, uh, suddenly this ability to experience steadfast love for one another. Yeah. And here's that point. My wife and I experience it in our marriage all the time. I've decided to follow Jesus. She's decided to follow Jesus, yeah. and neither of us will ever walk away from that covenant. Yeah. And because both of us have decided firmly we're going to follow Jesus, yeah. we keep running into each other. Aww. Even when we're mad at each other, even when we don't get one another, even if at times we've made a decision in our heart to separate, I need some space, I need some time, I need some space. And then suddenly we find ourselves in worship, and next thing we're holding hands, and all of a sudden that space we needed goes out the window. Why? Because we both decided to follow Jesus, yeah. and our division cannot stand his presence. Wow. That's it. We can't be divided in his presence. Yeah. Covenantal love simply means my walk with Jesus brought me to this church. Yeah. And I ran into you here. Yeah. I didn't expect to. <laughs> I might not have even wanted to. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm talking about y'all, not me. That's what you're, you're thinking. I'm speaking for you. <laughs> yeah. But I, I keep running into you here. Yeah. And I'm going to keep following Jesus. And you're going to keep following Jesus. Yeah. And if Jesus has both led us here, let us both here, we're going to keep running in. You know, if we keep looking at Jesus and running into each other, we're actually going to begin to experience covenant faithfulness with one another yeah. without needing to agree, without needing to see life the same way. Yeah. It's good. But covenant faithfulness means I can even talk to somebody who sees things radically different than I do, yeah. but who's radically in love with Jesus as I am and say, oh, you know what, you make sense. You might not make sense to me. Yeah. Your politics may not make sense to me. Yeah. Your ideology may not make sense to me. Yeah. But you know what makes sense? You're radically in love with Jesus, I'm radically in love with Jesus, and we keep bumping into each other. Yeah. I don't have to put on your mask. Yeah. You don't have to put on my mask. Yeah. But you know what? As long as Jesus has led us both on this road together, yeah. 
Let's not try to avoid one another. As long as Jesus has called us both to walk this road together, listen, covenant faithfulness does not mean you're never allowed to leave the church. Because that's the thing, when we start talking about covenant, covenant, let's come into covenant as the house of God, the first thing people think is, yeah, that means I sign up, you can check in, but you can't check out. Or if you, if you check out, they're going, to put, they're going to try to jump you out like a gang, put you through this whole list of ropes that you've got to jump through in order to leave the church. No, 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 we don't need any of that. Listen, I don't want you here another moment after Jesus has led you on. Yeah. If Jesus is leading you somewhere else, please go. Yeah. It simply means as long as Jesus has you here, as long as I'm led here by the Lord, because you know what? The same for me. Yeah. I, I guarantee you I'm here as long as Jesus has kept me here. And he has not moved me yet in 17 and a half years. My wife and I, because we used to think we're so committed to this church. And then we realized, no, no, actually, we're committed to Jesus. And wherever Jesus leads us, that's where we're going to go. And I have no clue where Jesus is going to lead me. I can't promise that he's going to keep me here forever. But you know what? I'm happy to be wherever. I'm I'm not dreaming of going anywhere else. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this because I'm thinking about Lord Jesus is about time. That's not what I'm thinking at all. I'm I'm happy to be where Jesus would have me to be. And I'm happy to be with who Jesus would have me to be. And that when you start experiencing that covenant faithfulness, that's actually what your heart longs for. You thought you were longing for promotion. No, you're longing for steadfast love. You thought you were longing for more zeros in your bank account with a solid number in front of those zeros. (laughs) (laughs) Some of y'all got a lot of zeros in the bank account, just no number in front. (laughs) But that's actually not what you're longing for. What you're longing for is steadfast love. And everything else is a wonderful blessing in addition to. But I'm already loved. I'm already chosen. I know who I am. He's already spoken which means that I'm satisfied. I'm able to identify the steadfast love around me. One of the things the Lord's been dealing with, worship team, come up, because I need to end this. I'm too late. Oh, my God, I'm so late. All right, I'm going to end this. One of the things the Lord's dealing with, with me about in my journaling is that I have some walls up sometimes that keep me from receiving love when it's spoken to me. And I've been asking the Lord, why is that? Josh has this way of just hugging for long periods of time. <laughs> and I just feel this, all right, all right, <laughs> all right. <laughs> Do you know what? I'm feeling more comfortable there. Don't everybody try that with me, though, please. <laughs> you know what it is? My heart is opening to be able to identify and embrace steadfast love. And sometimes all you need is to identify the love that's already all around you. You're surrounded by steadfast love. But it can't fill your heart until you open your heart to it and receive it. What activates our awareness of it is thanksgiving. One of the things the Lord is beginning to teach me to do when I'm feeling anxious or overwhelmed or alone is to just open up my journal and just write down all of the people who love me, all of the expressions of love that they show. And the moment I begin to do that, I'm overwhelmed. When I start reading through that and writing through that and enumerating and identifying and acknowledging all of the love that's all around me, I begin to realize the love of God is all around me trying to get in, but I'm the one holding up walls going, no, God, I don't have this and I don't have that and I don't have this and this person hasn't given me that and this person did this and this person did that and I'm just putting up all these walls and God is saying, yes, all that stuff is true and I actually care about all that stuff. I care deeply about how you feel and we're going to deal with those one by one. But in the meantime, could you let down the wall? Steadfast love is all around you and it's trying to get in. Because every expression of steadfast love that's communicated to you through every person in your life who communicates it is simply an expression 
of the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. There's no such thing as an expression of steadfast love to you that doesn't come from God. It's all God tapping on your shoulder in different ways. Will you let my love in? Because at the end of the day, that's what your heart yearns for more than anything else. And that's what the Father yearns to give you more than anything else. Bow your heads, let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move on every heart and every soul. Open our hearts today. Show us the ways in which we put a wall around our hearts that prevents the flow of your steadfast love into every empty space. Let your love flow into every empty space right now. Every empty space. Lord, we all have a deficit of love, but you come to fill that deficit. The deficit is your opportunity to declare to each and every one of us individually the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Right now, as an act of your will, just open your heart and say, Lord, let that love come in. Show me how I'm blocking that love and keeping it out. Teach me how to open my heart and let it in. That verse there in Proverbs 19:22, what a man desires most is steadfast love, chesed. It could be both objective or subjective. What a man desires most is, most is to receive steadfast love, but it could also mean what a man desires most is to give steadfast love. And both are true. What you long for more than anything else is to be both a recipient and a giver of steadfast love. And so when Jesus commands his disciples love one another, he was teaching them how to become instruments of God in satisfying the deepest desires of one another's hearts. This is what church is supposed to be. I am an instrument by which God, through me, satisfies the deepest longing of somebody's heart. I want to be that. I want to be an instrument of the steadfast love of the Lord in somebody's life in this community. I want somebody to say, I know the Father's love because Benjamin, and I want you to experience that. I know the Father's love because, Ken, because of Kendra's hugs. I know the Father's love because of Miss Jackie's greetings. I know the Father's love. I know the Father's love because of that greeter at the door. I know the Father's love because of this person who comes to me and just communicates unfailing love to me. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. 